From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a wildland firefighter fresh off the front lines. He describes unrelenting winds and homes where vegetation hadn't been cleared. And if you've done no defensible space, if you have dead trees all over the house, we're likely going to select another house that we think we can save. Then, to be black in America is often to be perceived as a threat, writes former Bronco Reggie Rivers. An actor brings his essay to the radio. My white friends intellectually understand what I'm saying and they sympathize with me. But they can't quite empathize because their life experience is so different from mine. And it's been called the greatest American novel you've never heard of. I think it was out of step with the times. People were not looking at that vein of realistic fiction at the time. The upcoming elections are likely to be the most crucial in recent memory. That means Colorado Public Radio has an even greater responsibility to help you separate facts from fiction. Your financial support ensures that unbiased, fact-based journalism is delivered to Colorado voters so we can all make informed decisions when filling out our ballots. Thank you for making the leap from listener to listener member at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Stay home, they said. During a pandemic, it's the safest place to be. Until a wildfire arrives, that is, then it's time to evacuate, which is what Jennifer Seifert had to do this week. As the East troublesome fire grew, she fled the dream home she bought only a year ago in Granby. I am devastated. We cried for five hours. I mean, just couldn't even keep it together the whole time I was packing the house. The forecast in Grand County calls for dry conditions until Sunday when snow's expected. Let's hear now from a wildland firefighter who's been battling a different blaze. Dan Gibbs also happens to be the executive director of Colorado's Department of Natural Resources. Dan, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be here with you. Sorry, it's under these circumstances. You got off the fire line of the Cameron Peak Fire this week, the largest in Colorado's recorded history, burning west of Loveland and Fort Collins. You've fought a lot of fires all over the country. Uh, does Cameron Peak stand out? It definitely stands out to me. First of all, the size of it, you know, over 200,000 acres, the complexity of it, too. The wind was just incredible. You know, and then we also have COVID-19. So that really creates a unique challenge with firefighting because you're in these little pods. We're, we're stressed with fires right now, not only in Colorado, but throughout the West. So just the sheer volume of work is just immense. Is there an image from fighting the Cameron Peak fire that stands out in your mind? Uh, maybe a moment of particular vulnerability that you face? Yes, definitely. We were working to save a house. And it's really important when you're wildland firefighting to know your escape routes. We had um, the fire on one side of the house was already kind of burned out, but it was traveling kind of to the other side. There was also a large propane tank that was within uh, the fire area. So risk of a propane explosion, risk of trees coming down and really putting an impediment on our escape route. And then, you know, just having fire (laughs) really all around you 
uh, is very unsettling to say the least. And you're lucky if you have like a bandana, you know, over your face. And so the air quality was really, really bad. But, you know, I'm happy to say we did save that particular house. And we stayed there for, for hours, really working to dig additional fire line and also provide water. But yeah, the scariest part was, you know, the wind, the uncertainty, and then just being aware of the lack of uh, escape routes. You mentioned the winds. In one video I saw from firefighters battling the Cameron Peak fire, I mean, it looked like a hellscape. Unrelenting winds in a setting that just looked completely orange. We're late October now. Does this feel unusual for this time of year? Yeah, you know, fire season used to be in Colorado, something that would happen, you know, late May through early September. Uh, Now fire season is really all year round. Is climate change on your mind these days? Yeah, most definitely. You know, as the head of the Department of Natural Resources, you know, I think about, you know, the fire seasons that we have. Um, The 20 largest fires in Colorado have occurred over the last 20 years you know, we're seeing numbers of recent average summer temps that are even higher than the extreme temps that we saw in the 1930s Dust Bowl. And then we also see peak runoff for our rivers and streams to be one to four weeks earlier, which really creates a challenge for fish and making sure there's enough water in our streams and it warms up the rivers you know, fire season now, it seems to be all year round instead of uh, seasonally. I guess with that in mind, do you think you'll be dispatched again? How late into the year or early into next, heaven forbid, do you foresee this going on in the West? You know, I'm really hoping for moisture. We may get some rain and snow this weekend. So we need moisture at the end of the day. And that's the one thing that would really help When you think about saving a house in a forested area, does it start to occur to you that maybe living in the wildland-urban interface in the face of climate change is a gamble? Um, and, And I realize when you're talking about people's homes, their property, where they live, there's a lot that ties them to that land, that connects them to that land. But what goes through your mind about the population that lives in these forested areas. Yeah, you know, in Colorado, we have well over a million people that live within this area called the WUI. You know, it stands for the Wildland Urban Interface. Folks that do live close to, you know, either forested, you know, we also have grassland fires. Uh, There is a risk. Fires are caused by, you know, sometimes lightning strikes, but these major fires were human caused. I know they're still doing investigations, but, you know, you can rule out, whether or not there's lightning strikes or not on a particular day when there's a start. You know, defensible space works. I've seen homes through some of my fire experience, the Four Mile Fire, for example, Boulder County a few years ago. There was a home that was totally saved. They had really great defensible space where they had vegetation and um, dead trees removed around their house. And I've seen um, houses with absolutely no defensible space And frankly, when we're out in those situations, we're going to pick which homes we think we can save. And if you've done no defensible space, if you have dead trees all over the house, we're likely going to select another house that we think we can save. But 
defensible space works, you know, removing dead trees and slash, and even even if they're green trees, you know, make sure there's adequate defensible space in place. It just makes a big, big difference to save your house, but honestly, uh, makes a big difference in the safety of the wildland firefighters that are trying to go out there too, to try to save your structure. We had some situations in the Cameron Peak fire where folks did absolutely no defensible space and we were busy, you know, removing trees and trying to create the defensible space, putting on sprinkler systems. We called in bucket drops. You know, the homes that with defensible space, you know, are the ones that you're likely going to be able to save. I think it's such an important point that defensible space is not just about protecting your home. It is also about protecting firefighters' lives. Do you debate, uh, Dan Gibbs, whether you are more needed behind a desk as the head of natural resources or on the fire line? <laughs> yes. Um, as we speak right now, the, the East Troublesome Fire in Grand County literally blew up. Um, I do want to get out and help. We have fires all over the state. I, I have a great deputy that, that has helped out, but Honestly, this time of year, you have a lot of seasonal firefighters that used to work for, for example, hotshot crews for the U.S. Forest Service or BLM that because of the seasonal nature, their jobs are not not available right now. So you definitely have a stress on resources. So any available person with a red card certification like what I have, I would say is desperately needed around the state. And, um, you know, it's likely I, I may go out again. You know, I have a wife and two young kids, so um, I have to make sure my lovely wife is okay with that as well. Do local fire departments and does the state have the money to fight all these fires? Depending on where the fire is at, you know, it could be a local fire department that's managing it. You know, when it gets to a larger, you know, 100,000 acre fire, it's federal incident management teams that come in. These fires are very expensive, to say the least. You could easily spend a million dollars a day when you when you tack on bringing in a, a VLAT, you know, the very large air tankers, which are the, the DC-10s yeah. or the Sky Crane helicopters, too, that can hold a lot of water for bucket drops. You know, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see when fire season's done, you know, what the tally is for the cost. But that's why I think... Um, working on proactive management of our forests, working with state, federal, local fire entities to really collaborate to see where the gaps are and how we work together is just so important right now. Forest management, you know, there are any number of people who will say, this may be about climate change, it's also about how we manage forests. Does there need to be a reinvention of that approach? Climate change is real and it is impacting our forests, no doubt about it. You know, do we need to look at some landscape scale forest restoration projects? Uh, yes, most definitely. Uh, the governor signed a shared stewardship MOU with the U.S. Forest Service last year that spells out how we work together and collaborate on whether it's um, forest health projects or trails maintenance, growth that we've seen in the outdoors. And, you know, wildfires don't know the difference between federal, state and private lands. And so we need to look at landscape scale collaboration between all the different partners in the state of Colorado. In Grant County, where the East Troublesome Fire is burning, 
There are so many reservoirs. I looked it up. Dozens of reservoirs in Grand County alone. Uh, And of course, that means people well outside of Grand County rely on the water there. What concerns do you have about water, water quality? You know, that that's the headwaters of the Colorado River are there. So seven states and Mexico, you know, depend on Colorado River water. You know, we are working actively with communities to try to plan, coordinate, provide grants to look at after the fact. These fires can just have huge impacts to water. You look at the Buffalo Creek fire back in 1992, uh, Denver Water still spends millions of dollars dealing with a sediment load as a result of that fire. Uh, the Hayman Fire is another example. You know, it's when these fires are done that we're going to have real challenges with our water systems. But my, our team is actively working with communities, and we're, we're working to be on top of it. Dan, thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Dan Gibbs leads Colorado's Department of Natural Resources. He's also a reserve wildland firefighter who just left the front lines of the Cameron Peak Fire. Former Broncos running back Reggie Rivers wrote an essay shortly after the police killing of George Floyd. It ran in the Denver Post. And tonight, it'll be performed by the local theater company Stories on Stage. The essay is one of several pieces in this show called Don't Look Away, Black Stories Matter. Well, ahead of the event, we have the honor of hearing Rivers' essay as read by actor Cajardo Lindsay of Aurora. I'm Black, and despite all I've accomplished, society views me as a threat. By Reggie Rivers. I've tried, (laughs) unsuccessfully, to explain to my white friends why I have always feared the police. I can trace the origin of this fear back to a time when my father was pulled over for a traffic ticket when I was in grade school. I don't remember anything about the exchange except for the sudden realization that my big, strong, all-powerful, all-knowing father was scared. Sensing his fear instantly made me terrified. I knew that the officer approaching our window was a threat to us. Since then, I've been pulled over many times, and while I've never been physically abused, I've been yelled at and disrespected and felt that I was being baited into reacting. Getting pulled over by a police officer is the single most dangerous thing that happens in my life. My white friends intellectually understand what I'm saying and they sympathize with me, but they can't quite empathize because their life experience is so different from mine. I realized a few years ago that two dog breeds reflect the differences between the white and the black experience. White people in America are Labrador retrievers. Black people like me are Rottweilers. In our country, Labrador retrievers are beloved animals, welcome in hardware stores, parks, restaurants, the homes of strangers, hiking trails, and just about anywhere else you can think of. They're seen as kind, loving, loyal, playful, happy, and completely safe. I am a Rottweiler. Society views me as a threat no matter where I am, on the sidewalk, in the street, in a park, 
in a car, even my own yard. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. My mere presence is threatening enough to compel someone to call animal control to remove me. When animal control officers arrive to capture a Rottweiler, they climb out of their truck in full protective gear, expecting the worst. They approach cautiously and tensely, which the Rottweiler experiences as stalking behavior, a threat. They use a pole to get a collar around the Rottweiler's neck and then cinch it down tight to ensure that he doesn't get away. But that makes the Rottweiler feel that he's getting trapped, so he fights for his freedom, which causes the animal control agents to use even more force to control him, which causes the dog to fight harder for his freedom. This cycle of escalation sometimes continues until the Rottweiler is dead. Labrador retrievers blame the Rottweiler for escalating the situation. They say all he had to do was wag his tail and be friendly, but he got aggressive and they had no choice but to put him down. But the escalation didn't start with the Rottweiler. The first escalation was the universal opinion that Rottweilers are dangerous and don't belong in most places. The second escalation came when someone called animal control because there was a Rottweiler sitting quietly outside of a Starbucks. The third escalation was the animal control officers arriving with a determination that they needed to be forceful and aggressive. The Rottweiler's death warrant was written by these escalations before he even got involved in the situation. Labrador retrievers have a hard time understanding this. They believe that every dog breed can achieve the same level of acceptance in society simply by wagging their tails and being friendly. They're not aware that they were born with favored breed status. It's their breed, not their wagging tails, that drives their experience. I am a Rockweiler. But interestingly, my fame as a former Denver Bronco media personality and philanthropist has given me a unique status in the state of Colorado. I am so well known and so well trusted that most of the time I am treated like a Labrador retriever, a chocolate lab. I get to see the world from the Labrador's perspective, and it is astonishing how different it is from the Rottweiler's point of view. The Labrador is universally liked, universally accepted, universally trusted, and fits in by doing nothing more than showing up. But when I leave the state of Colorado, I instantly become a Rottweiler again. The Rottweiler is universally feared, universally suspected, universally distrusted, and the Rottweiler stands out. Imagine a lone Rottweiler in the middle of dozens of Labrador retrievers at the dog park. If there's a problem, everyone assumes the Rottweiler started it. To Rottweilers, the differences are obvious and plainly visible, especially when animal control officers execute one of us in the side of the road. But it's hard to convince the Labrador retrievers that it was systemic bias that caused the murder, not the specific actions of that Rottweiler. The positive bias that the Labradors experience is so far removed from the negative bias that we Rottweilers experience that the labs have a hard time believing it exists. Actor Cajardo Lindsay of Aurora reading an essay by Reggie Rivers, the author and former Denver Bronco. That piece is part of Don't Look Away, Black Stories Matter. 
a virtual show tonight from Boulder's Stories on Stage. Now, an entrepreneur whose new venture could be a heavy lift. Eric Rosa of Boulder purchased CrossFit. That was after the 20-year-old fitness company stumbled on reports of a toxic culture. Meanwhile, the pandemic has driven many people out of gyms. Eric, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a brief introduction. You ran a tech startup that was sold to Oracle for more than a billion dollars. Then you opened a CrossFit gym in Boulder, and now you've bought the company at a time of turmoil. CrossFit founder Greg Glassman is accused of rampant sexual harassment. He also tweeted this summer that he doesn't mourn for George Floyd, and hundreds of gyms dropped their affiliation in protest. Glassman's out, but how much did he hurt CrossFit's brand? You know, I think when people are as passionate about a brand as as folks are about CrossFit, and there are millions of people in 155 countries around the world who really are passionate about CrossFit and feel like it's changed their lives, it's very important that they feel good about the leadership. And so I think there's no question that, um, that that created a lot of cognitive dissonance for people who are already avid CrossFitters. And I think for people who aren't yet close to CrossFit, it probably gave them some pause about whether this was something they wanted to be part of. Yeah, I mean, it gave them more than pause, I suppose, if they pulled their affiliation. Uh, how, how do you move from a place where walking into CrossFit now means allying yourself with, you know, sexual harassment or his views on George Floyd? What does that work look like? Well, I think what's changed is so Greg sold us the the company outright. So it really doesn't mean that, Ryan. What it really means is that when you're walking into CrossFit or trying CrossFit, what you're really doing is buying into kind of a a methodology and a community and a tribe that is about as inclusive as anything I've ever seen in my life. And I say this as someone who's who's opened four gyms and have um, have owned one of the biggest gyms in the U.S. for eight years. So we've um, we've worked very hard to show that we're going to walk this walk ourselves and how we lead the company. Give me an example. Well, the, one of the first things I did was bring in a head of culture and inclusion reporting directly to me. And we've been doing a very extensive audit of all of our practices. We've also started to build a diverse leadership team and board. And the first thing I did was just listen and learn from hundreds of people in the community. And, I, and that's not an exaggeration. I had, I've had one-on-one calls with hundreds of people to really understand what CrossFit has meant to them. What were their feelings around, you know, the the recent allegations and tweets and so on? And what did we need to do, you know, to to really be at our best? The way I always think about it, Ryan, is those who do CrossFit know what CrossFit is at its best. And we need to be there more often. And we need to, frankly, never, never be um, where the business was in June. And and what's important to realize is as a gym owner myself and a CrossFit athlete myself, I dealt with all these things on the other side, right? We, we got notes from members that said, why aren't you de-affiliating? Why aren't you taking CrossFit off the sign? Mm. And it was frankly hearing that a bunch that led me to say, you know what? Someone needs to come in. It's time for a change here at the top. Well, let's talk about behavior and the idea that people associated with CrossFit, especially women, will be treated with respect. What did you know to have gone on and how are you addressing it? 
Well, it's it's pretty interesting because there were different dynamics in the, the articles around the culture of, of toxicity around sexism. And so these are allegations at this point. So what we've done is we've we had to we started with the team in place and then we've gone back to some former employees and had detailed discussions to really unearth were some of these alleged behaviors actually going on and are there people still employed by CrossFit who are part of this? To our knowledge right now, there is no one employed by CrossFit who has been alleged to have been involved in, in these kinds of behaviors historically. And most of the, the leadership team, frankly, at this point are new people that I brought in. We have some great people who have been around for a long time and where no behaviors like this were ever alleged. But it's really, you know, it, it has to come from the top. One interesting thing is that over 50% of the folks who do CrossFit are women. And so again, at our best, this is an ex extremely inclusive experience for people, but there's no doubt that there have been bad actors in the past and that there have been some unfortunate situations in the past. If, and we're you, trying. Yeah, if, as you say, they're gone, those bad actors, or at least the ones you know about, is it because they were fired or they left of their own volition or what? You know, I actually haven't audited historically what led to people leaving, but a lot of the people whose names came up with the behaviors were no longer with the company. Okay. I do want to talk about the it, cross... It, it, sorry, Ryan, one more thing. Yeah. The other thing is we've made very clear that there's a zero tolerance policy. It's really interesting because we have a hundred some people who are full-time employees of CrossFit. And then we have 100,000 people in the ecosystem who make their full-time living with CrossFit and then millions who do it right as, as participants. And, and we really need to start from the core here and just say there is a zero, you know, zero tolerance policy going forward. But and we, we will absolutely enforce that. Inherent, of course, in this is the decentralized nature of the clubs. I mean, they're all over the world and and um, th th there does seem to always be a new fitness trend. I mean, you got CrossFit, Orange Theory, Soul Cycle, especially in the midst of a pandemic. What makes you think that CrossFit has strength, has momentum? I think one of the things is I, you know, I'm not a newcomer to this. You know, this has been something that I've been into for a long time. I try as a kind of lifelong athlete and someone who is, you know, pretty obsessive about fitness. When I discovered CrossFit about 10 years ago, and I was already 40, I right away just saw the changes in my body, saw the changes in my, in my mood, and started looking forward to my, my time in CrossFit as the best time of the day. And sure enough, when we did our research on the way into this transaction, we found that over half of the people who do CrossFit say it has literally changed their lives which is about as high as I've ever heard from any practice, frankly. And I've seen it reflected in my own life. And so we think this is really something special. You mentioned a number of other exercise modalities, and all those are really interesting, I think, and have their own benefits. And in some cases, not just niche, right, to, to big groups of people. But when you get into really this changes my life, and this is a tribe I'm part of, you know, we've had people... Um, meet and get engaged in my in my gym huh. people go on vacation together so i just saw something very different and special here tell me how crossfit gyms are operating in the midst of the covid-19 pandemic uh, and it, yeah and and whether you it, foresee that changing anytime soon well i think it's highly variable well, i'll tell you for my gym uh, the gym i own crossfit sedidas in boulder we have a 
cap on each class attendees. It's, it depends on the time of the class, but it's somewhere between 16 or 18 people. Each, um, each person's space is taped off. You have to enter the building and, and keep a mask on the entire time you're in there. Other than if you're getting a drink of water, you can take it off very quickly. But even during the workout, and we're seeing um, we're seeing our, our membership come back up very nicely as a result. We also keep the doors open, spray off the equipment. So, but there are parts of the world and, and even parts of the country where uh, people still are not allowed to go into gyms. Marin County, California, as an example. But every state now is open to some degree. New York, New Jersey, North Carolina all came back in the last few weeks but still below capacity, right? So I think depending on the part, if we look in the U.S., depending on the part of the U.S., people are operating probably somewhere between 30% and 90% of their capacity. It's really important to know that CrossFit classes are not really crowded like spin classes. You don't have 60 people in a CrossFit class. You, but typical class would be 10 to 20 people in a pretty big space. And so is, are those margins that CrossFit can operate on for any extended period? That is a great question. It depends, right? It depends on the cost of the real estate and so on. These are all franchised operations. Yeah, 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 right. And so, um, you know, people are doing, holding a lot of classes outside. They're doing online programming for their members so that they can do things via Zoom and so on. And we are, you know, we are hunkered down. Like we think this is, you know, I think anyone reasonable needs to think this pandemic and the and the attendant, you know, semi-quarantine may last a year or more from here. I think we have to start with the principle of how can we keep people as physically and mentally healthy as possible? And then hopefully the business model follows. But it's it's a challenging time for sure. Mm. And it, by the way, Ryan, I'll just say, some of this stuff feels pretty arbitrary because in some cases restaurants are more open than, than gyms are. And, you know, our job is to keep people physically and mentally healthy. And so in some parts of the country, they've really gotten it wrong, unfortunately. And as I said, a number of states course corrected a bit in September, but it's unfortunate to see, um, it's unfortunate to see some of these kind of fairly arbitrary decisions being made because I just don't think that a gym that is kind of sparsely, uh, you know, sparsely occupied is the same kind of danger as a, as a nail salon or a restaurant with tight tables and a small environment and so on. So we really would like people to think about this a little bit differently. Yeah, of course, you got people exerting and maybe even going, huh, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, well, that's you, a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are, I didn't mention, you know, there are a number of best practices, right? You don't want people facing each other, things like that, right? Mm. You want to be very mindful of the aerosols. And I think the best gyms to go to right now are gyms that can ventilate, right? That have big fans in them, that have the doors open, and that have people in separate areas where they're not facing each other. But you're right, people will breathe hard. And in most states, people need to wear a mask still to work out. Well, why don't we wrap up with what you think the pandemic, even when it ends, when, when it ends, I'm not saying if, how how do you think (laughs) that might, (laughs) how do you think that might permanently reshape fitness? Well, I think it's really interesting. We're seeing a lot of people doing kind of at-home fitness, and including a lot of CrossFit gyms and, and my gym, right, where we're helping people train at home. I will tell you that one of the biggest benefits of CrossFit is the community, is the attendant community. And as you know, that's been one of the hardest things of the lockdown has been a lack of community, and it's hard to connect. I think that we will see a very significant 
flight back to the best providers of fitness who are also creating great community. I, I believe, and I've seen this in myself, I think mental health is, is at least 51% of the benefit of working out. And I think when you do it in a community with wonderful people and great coaching that make you feel welcome, I think that's what CrossFit is at its best. And I think we'll see record numbers of CrossFitters, but I don't know if we'll see that in 2021, frankly. Um, That's really going to depend on the course of the pandemic. Eric, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me on with you. Eric Rosa of Boulder is the new owner of CrossFit. When we come back, it's been called the greatest American novel you've never heard of. And now it's getting its due. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it. But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talk to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef, and a neurologist. On the latest episode of On Something, find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The perfect novel. That's how the New Yorker magazine described the book we're going to talk about now. A book you've likely never heard of. It was written by a University of Denver professor published in 1965. The title Stoner doesn't refer to what you might think. It's just the last name of the main character, William Stoner, who's an ordinary guy. DU celebrates the novel's 55th anniversary with a virtual conference tomorrow. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with Alan Prendergast, reporter for Westward. Prendergast has written about Stoner and is the conference's keynote speaker. I'm going to start by asking you to read from the beginning of the book just to give folks an idea of how it's written. Alan, why don't you read from that first section for us? Sure. Well, it's an interesting and unusual introduction. I mean, the, the book starts with almost a resume for William Stoner. It starts out, William Stoner entered the University of Missouri as a freshman in the year 1910 at the age of 19. Eight years later, he received his Doctor of Philosophy degree. It goes on like in that vein, almost like a resume. And then it says, an occasional student who comes upon the name may wonder idly who William Stoner was but he seldom pursues his curiosity beyond a casual question. Stoner's colleagues, who held him in no particular esteem when he was alive, speak of him rarely now. To the older ones, his name is a reminder of the end that awaits them all. And to the younger ones, it is merely a sound which evokes no sense of the past. So you don't get a sense that this guy is all that extraordinary. Not even memorable. I mean, it starts with, you know, summarizing his life and death and saying nobody remembers him. He was not, didn't make an impression on anybody. You know, he's forgotten almost as soon as he's dead. So obviously it's not what you would expect the typical sort of way to start a novel about a protagonist you want the reader to get interested in. And what do you think makes the reader move forward with it? Well, that's part of what I think is brilliant about the book, is he introduces this guy in very unsparing terms. His life is not an easy one, and everything seems to go wrong for him. Yet somehow we feel a real sense of empathy with him. And part of it is the brilliance, I think, with which Williams manages to convey the details of a life like that and show that there is something heroic even in the 
very limited terms that he's able to manage his life. And, and just a little more about the plot. Well, this is the story of a university professor. And that in itself is not necessarily the most promising material, but this is a university professor at the early part of the 20th century who basically falls in love with, he's a farm boy who falls in love with literature and pursues it doggedly. But everything is sort of stacked against him in his life. He's got a wife who doesn't like him. Uh, He's got a daughter who's an alcoholic. His career is blighted by politics within the department. And so the question becomes, you know, what sort of life can he have? What sort of victory can he have in that, those kind of circumstances? And how do you put meaning into something that seems, you know, mediocre and frustrating and hopeless? You've called it a quiet, impressive book. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, Stoner was published in 1965. And if you think about the literature of that time, it couldn't be more different from what was going on elsewhere. I mean, the really the sort of primal scream literature that was going on in the 60s, the experimental fiction, the egocentric stuff like Norman Mailer. Um, and yet you find this is a very old-fashioned book and a very stodgy book, perhaps, because it doesn't try to be in that vein. It's very disciplined. The writing is very austere. It's like one of the realistic novels of the early 20th century, But yet, there is something very haunting about this book. There is something that has made an incredible impression on people over and over again. And I think it has to do with just that kind of authenticity. It doesn't try to hype itself. And ultimately, it's about someone who is wrapped up in literature. And people who love to read, I think, relate to this book because the principal figure is a guy who, when everything else goes wrong, finds his consolations in literature. So it's almost a kind of metafiction, if you will, <laughs> posing as an old-fashioned book. I love the book, and it is very old-fashioned. The way he proposes marriage, the way he lives his life, and yet it stands the test of time. And I wonder, what is it about this book that allows it to feel modern, even though it's old-fashioned? Well, I think people relate to the idea that your dreams don't work out the way you expect them to. Your life doesn't work out the way you expect it to. And this was as true 100 years ago as it is now, that people come up with certain expectations, certain ideals, certain romantic notions about the world, and they see them get dashed. And we see that happen in literature a lot. If that was all that happened in this book, then I don't think it would have survived the way it did. But what seems to touch people is the idea that even though he knows he's headed for oblivion. I mean, we know that from the first page, from that passage I just read you. Um, He persists in doing the thing that he finds he actually is good at, which is teaching. And there's something to be said for that kind of redemption. I mean, it's not a romantic redemption by any way. I mean, he's still going to die and be forgotten. (laughs) But he learns how to be true to the book that's true to him. This is one way that, uh, that Williams talks about it. And I think that, you know, that's that authenticity that appeals to people. You're a reporter. How did you get connected to this book? Well, I was always interested in local writers, particularly those that hadn't gotten their due. Williams taught at the University of Denver for 30-some years and yet was virtually unknown here. And this book, when it was first published, disappeared quickly. He won the National Book Award subsequently with his book, Augustus, his novel about uh, ancient Rome. He's the only Colorado author to ever win the National Book Award, and yet still people have never heard of him. 
So I got interested in this in part because I found out every few years the book Stoner is rediscovered. And somebody writes an essay saying this is the greatest book ever. This is the most important novel you've never heard of. It's a perfect novel. And yet there was no biographical information. So as a reporter, I thought, okay, let's find out. This guy lived in my town all these years. Let's figure out who he was and what this was all about. And I was able to locate some of his colleagues, his students, his, uh, his wife, and really go through his papers, which were sitting in the University of Arkansas. Nobody had really looked at them and start to understand a little more how this book came about. So, I mean, there's a real life story there. As a University of Denver professor, was he regarded as a great professor? You know, it's interesting. I, you know, he was there for a very long time, and he did some some really important things, including setting up one of the first doctorate creative writing programs in the country. And he had certain students he made an indelible impression upon, many of whom have gone on to writing careers of their own. Um, at the same time, I think being anywhere for over 30 years, you're going to find times change and priorities change. And I think that by the time he retired, there was perhaps a little more tension or bitterness about his life at DU than there had been years earlier, which is kind of interesting. This program now this weekend, DU is essentially acknowledging what an important figure he was in the history of that school and trying to celebrate his work that probably never got its due when he was there. Any sense of why, and I know he was very disappointed that the book really didn't get the recognition he thought it deserved. It sold only 2,500 copies. Any sense of why it didn't get recognized then? Well, I think it was out of step with the times. People were not looking at that kind of vein of realistic fiction at the time. And particularly something that talks about what would happen at a university in Missouri, you know, at the turn of the century, essentially, the early 1900s. Um, you know, it was just an oddball thing to have amidst all this creative explosion and experimentation in writing. It's a very traditional book in certain ways. And so I, I think it just got overlooked. Do you think in some ways, the way you describe the character in the book, the main character, William Stoner, in some way mirrors the real-life experience of um, the author, John Williams? Well, it's certainly not literally, you know, it's not biographical in a very obvious way, but I think it represents certain things about Williams's attitude towards the university and towards literature. The most sustained and suspenseful scene in the entire book, oddly enough, has to do with a graduate student's oral exams. And Williams tends to get an incredible amount of tension out of this because Stoner, his character, is very much opposed to this student and what he stands for. To him, the student is dishonest. The student is represents something he doesn't want in the university. And there's a great battle involved in his dueling with this student over his notions about literature and genius and things like that. So and I think Williams comes across in there. I mean, if you know anything about his teaching, you find out that he had shared similar views to this with Stoner. But it's it's interesting how much real, you know, excitement he can get out of what sounds like a pretty mundane proceeding. I understand the book had a rebirth of sorts back in the early 2000s in Europe. What prompted Europeans to start reading it? Well, one of the fortuitous things that happened was a French novelist named Anna Gravalda read Stoner in English and was incredibly impressed with it and undertook to translate it herself. And it became a bestseller in France. And I think that got the attention of some of the other European Union countries. 
Uh, Germany, it was translated there, became a big hit in Belgium and other places. Suddenly it was all over the place. But part of that also was, I think, even before the European translation started, it was reissued by the New York Review of Books. I mean, that was about 15 years ago, and that started the current revival, I think. And it sort of has a cult following now in some ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for years when it was very scarce, graduate students would, you know, steal copies from the library and pass it among themselves. And now I think people who read it sort of, you know, particularly people that are really devoted, that it makes a huge impression to it, they're thrusting it on other people. And fortunately, it's in print now so that it's a lot easier to do that than it was a few years ago. I've seen, you know, first editions of Stoner, you pointed out it wasn't published. I mean, there weren't very many copies in print. They sell for thousands of dollars now, if you can find the original first edition of it. Alan, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you, Andrew. Alan Prendergast speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about the unsung novel Stoner by the late John Williams, who taught at the University of Denver. A virtual conference at DU tomorrow celebrates the book's 55th anniversary. Don't let the pandemic scare you away from Halloween. Haunted houses have reinvented themselves as car-centric scares like City of the Dead in Denver and No Place to Go in Lakewood. One theater troupe in Fort Collins has transformed a remote homestead into a haunted stroll through Colorado's unsolved mysteries. This is from the production In the Pines by the theater company Lunacies. Artistic director Leah Casper was inspired by the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, which ran in the late 80s and 90s. It's also recently revived on Netflix. I just really like Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. He always scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. And he still, to this day, scares the crap out of me when I tried to like watch this for research. And I just thought that would be really fun to have, like, the show Unsolved Mysteries, like, have an alien abduction scene, have a ghost story, have one about a serial killer. It turns out Colorado has plenty of its own unsolved mysteries. A guide leads you through them. Theatrical director Steve Dewey says the setting is the perfect pandemic haunt. It definitely coincided with the current, you know, conditions we're in. So we had to think outside. And I think that's a beautiful part of it is we were thinking, you know, thing, things, things are kind of getting bad. And um, how can we keep creativity going? We yeah. can't do it inside anymore. So we tried to tie in beautiful cultural history of Colorado and how fun it is, you know, how fun it is to investigate a lot of these ghost stories and, you know, like the paranormal and, um, and how they get changed a lot. You know, they get passed on, too. And then people had. So that kind of coincided with the pandemic. The immersive theatrical hike in the Pines by Fort Collins Theater Group Lunacies runs through the weekend. Finally today, a new song just in time for Halloween. Ghost is the second single from Valdez, the new project from Denver guitarist Nate Valdez. (laughs) 
Ghost is a nod to Valdez's resume. As a teenager, he worked at his grandfather's mortuary in Los Animas, then moved to Denver and got a job with an undertaker here. Valdez is also half of the duo In The Whale. He and his bandmate Eric Riley have been keeping busy with socially distant shows in Colorado and Wyoming. It's time for us to ghost. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>